Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Okay, I've got a joke for you. Um, two nuns are driving and a vampire jumps out in front of the car. And one nun says to the other, Quickly, Mary, get out and show me your cross. So Mary gets out the car and says to the vampire, I am so angry with you right now. That'll show them. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversation. You just got a joke from Welsh singer-songwriter Kate LeBon. That'll help break the ice. She's on tour now. Later, we'll speak with Stephen Merritt about the new album from his band, The Magnetic Fields. Also coming up, judging Amy's Amy Brenneman judges your etiquette questions. Yes. And science facts from the sexiest astrophysicist alive. But first, some Earth news. But since podcasts are timeless, let's go straight to small talk. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Later, celebrated animator Bill Plimpton is here to tell us about his favorite forgotten animated movies. I, I don't know. How can you tell people about something you've forgotten? He remembered. Oh, okay. Just in the nick. <laughs> All right. Uh, and coming up, a cocktail recipe to soothe both mind and belly. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Davy Jones, the lead singer of the Monkees, has died. Friday's parliamentary election in Iran is the first national election since 2009. And the Oscar goes to the artist. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Jake Silverstein. He is the editor-in-chief of the Texas Monthly. Yes. Jake, what story are you going to be talking about down there this weekend? Well, the story that has really dominated the conversation this whole week and last week in Texas has been the bid of a woman named Samantha Ketchum to become the first female Yale leader at Texas A&M University. Yale wow. leader? What is a Yale leader? Well, a Yale leader is what other schools call cheerleaders. They're five guys who uh, wear all white and they lead the crowd in these totally incomprehensible cheers <laughs> that everybody knows perfectly by heart, and they do all sorts of other very, very strange things. The unofficial motto of Texas A&M is, from the outside, you can't understand it. From the inside, you can't explain it. <laughs> Great. Wow. That sounds scary. So wait, this, this sounds like the Blue Man group, except they're wearing white. Yeah. They're just these dudes running around doing weird stuff. They do all sorts of very strange things. One of the things that they do is they actually squeeze their testicles during one uh, part of the <laughs> one of their songs in order to show sympathy for the pain that the football team themselves are going through. Well, now, forgive me, but it, might this be one of the reasons why it might be difficult for a young woman <laughs> to become a yell leader? It would be. So where does the story stand now? What's going on? Is she going to become a yell leader? The voting was tallied, and she's not going to become the first female yell leader in history. But what's been interesting is how big a deal this has been. I mean, you've had people kind of going around saying, is there nothing holy in the world? <laughs> what are we going to do next? We are going to have a girl on the sidelines cheering a football oh team. Oh, my gosh. This is unheard of. It's like opposite land over there. <laughs> right. Jeez. Tradition is taken very seriously there. And I, I should say that some of this has to be seen in the context of the fact that the most famous yell leader from Texas A&M is Governor Rick Perry. Oh. <laughs> That's right. That kind of gives you a sense of, like, you know, the skills that it required to become a yell leader. <laughs> All right. Well, Jake, um, for those who haven't heard, could you give us one of these yells that the yell leader leads? I'm not very good at leading yells, but I can tell you the contents of the most famous Aggie yell, and that's called Farmer's Fight. All right. Let's hear it. Farmer's fight. Farmer's fight. Fight, fight. Farmers. Farmers. <laughs> fight. They don't really sound very good without like 60,000 people saying that. It's like a transcript from a Rick Perry <laughs> debate performance. There you go. Jake Silverstein, thanks for the small talk. Sure. Gig'em, Ags. 
And now, I guess, time for cocktails? Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our slightly off-dry history lesson with booze. First, the history. This week back in 1899, a drug was patented which cured one of humanity's biggest headaches. Namely, headaches. Our friend Michelle Philippi tells the story. Imagine a world without aspirin. You don't have to live in that world, thanks to Felix Hoffman. Hoffman was a chemist for the drug company Bayer. Legend has it he wanted to invent something to soothe his dad's arthritis pain. So he started working with a chemical called salicylic acid. It was an obvious choice. Salicylic had been used as a painkiller for years. Even ancient Greeks dosed up with a form of it made from willow bark. The problem? Salicylic tastes awful. And though it cures headaches, it causes stomach aches. Hoffman's breakthrough? He fused the stuff with acetic acid to create a wonder drug, an even better painkiller that was easy on the gut. In 1899, Bayer trademarked it, and aspirin soon became one of the most common household drugs on Earth. Hoffman didn't stop there, though. Two weeks after inventing aspirin, he fused another drug with acetic acid, morphine. Bayer gave the result the brand name heroin. So that was the history. Now for a cocktail to ease the pain. On the line is Summer Volker, head bartender at the restaurant Salt of the Earth in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where Bear has its United States headquarters, actually. So, Summer, you have heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make? So um, it inspired me to make a cocktail called the B3. So it's Boyd, Blair, and Bear. Ah, B3, first of all, is what you're saying. Yes, B3. And Boyd and Blair is a is a local Pittsburgh vodka. I'm guessing that part. It is a delicious, award-winning local Pittsburgh vodka. And what's the third B? Uh, Bear, for the Bear Corporation. Of course. I didn't know if that was <laughs> another kind of liquor called Bear, which would be <laughs> almost too great to believe. What so? Right. So what is what's in this thing? How does it work? Yeah, so um, I was inspired by the whole stomach, digestive aspect of it, soothing your stomach. You know, more than likely, alcohol does not soothe your stomach unless it's in digestive form. Right. So I used sodium bicarbonate. There's lots of bees happening. <laughs> sodium bicarbonate um, tablets um, with a sugar cube and half of a lemon that I've zested and dehydrated. So everything gets pulverized really, really nice and fine. So you made like um, a powder out of all this stuff? Yeah, I made a, a powder out of it. You know, the same sort of thing that you would take, you know, after dinner, antacid sort of style, but we're going to make it boozy. So. so it's like a boozy Alka-Seltzer you're going to come up with here. The best boozy Alka-Seltzer ever. Oh, my God. Well, it's going to be a show anyway. <laughs> so you grind up, what is it again? Uh, sodium bicarbonate. Okay. I got the little tablets that I use from like a local Italian, like little groceria. They love the things. Oh, so. yeah. I've seen these things. They're like little white. They almost look like white Cheetos kind of. And you put them in water and they turn into bubbly liquid. Exactly. Exactly. I got it. So you so you grind that up with some sugar and the dried out lemon zest. Then um, I just chilled an ounce and a half of delicious Boyd and Blair vodka. All right. And um, <laughs> I put the powder into the glass first and then pour the vodka over the powder. And then I just gave it one swirl with a spoon 
and it just starts bubbling like crazy. You have this really nice effervescent, salty, lemony, sweet concoction. That is genius. Are you going to start? <laughs> Do you guys have a brunch, by the way? We don't have brunch. Uh, we are just uh, open for dinner. That is too bad because this thing could definitely replace the, uh, the Bloody Mary as the hangover cure of choice. I would say so. Man, Rico, yeah. an Alka-Seltzer cocktail, right? I think that's a first for us. It's like your evening and your morning in one glass. <laughs> it's perfect. It's nice. You should call it alcohol. Oh, no. That's What's right. the cure for that pun, though? <laughs> a better pun or a yeah. gla- glass of gin? It would have to be a lot better. <laughs> uh, folks, you can find a cure for what ails you on our website. All our recipes are there. It's at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is animator Bill Plimpton. He has hand-drawn videos for Kanye West. He was twice nominated for Oscars for Best Animated Short. And this week, he's the honoree at the Los Angeles Animation Festival. But for today's list, he honors others in the field. Uh, My name is Bill Plimpton. I'm an independent animator. And I am about to uh, give you my list of three of the most unappreciated animated feature films. My, oh my, what a wonderful day. Uh, Number one, and this isn't necessarily an obscure film, but it is a film that was very influential on my life, Song of the South, a Disney film. Came out in the 50s, I believe. And it's been pulled out of circulation because it deals with uh, Southern slavery in a condescending way, and a lot of black groups uh, oppose the film. Yet, for my mind, it's the, probably the best character animation that Disney ever did. Milk Call was head of the uh, animation part of the film. It is part live action, part animation. Well, the thing that really stands out for me in terms of character design is this doesn't have that cutesy, cute animals, playing songs. It has a lot of violence. It has a lot of uh, crazy humor. Ow! Now see that? That old brow patch ain't brought me nothing but trouble. This was a wonderful direction that the animation took that Disney didn't really uh, get excited about. Then they went back to the fairy tales, you know, Cinderella, uh, Sleeping Beauty, things like that. Well, so long, Uncle uh, The number two film, uh, and this is a little bit more obscure film, it's called Grendel, Grendel, Grendel. An Australian film uh, from 1981, and it's a marvelous updated version of the Grendel myth, obviously. It has humor and it's a great story, beautiful art, beautiful design, great music. Your mother loves you, Grendel, standing there, oh, 12 feet high, oh, more of you. But it's done in humorous and brilliant style. It's, it's kind of like Yellow Submarine. It was kind of pop art, kind of uh, very colorful. The voice is by Peter Ustinov. Ah, uh, I'm home, mother. Where are you, dear? In your pit? Oh, I've got some nice legs for you. Uh, Now, don't... You don't smell any better, do you? Uh, Don't gobble them up and get indigestion. I actually talked to the director, producer of the film, and he was surprised that I had seen his film. 
I asked him to bring it out on DVD, and he said, oh, no, nobody wants to see it. It didn't do very well in Australian uh, theaters. And I said, well, you know, if I had more money, I would definitely finance the release on DVD. Uh, my number three choice is a really a masterpiece. Uh, this film is one of my favorite all-time films. It's called uh, Mind Game. And it's a Japanese film. It's not your typical anime. I, I don't like anime. It drives me up the wall, these, these characters with the big eyes and, and these robot monsters. Uh, the plot of the film is very wacky. It's about going back in time and going forward in time and ending up in the in the belly of a whale in a little city, a little village <laughs> inside the whale. The final of the film is where they escape the mouth of the whale as the water is pouring in. And it's a, it's a wonderful, to me, to my mind, it's the Citizen Kane of animation. It's just so brilliant, it's so beautiful. It also has a tragic story similar to Grendel, Grendel, Grendel. It didn't get good reviews either in the Tokyo press, so you can't find it. I found a copy at a, um, one of my local Japanese stores, and it doesn't have English subtitles on it, but it, it's fun even without the dialogue. The guest list from animator Bill Plimpton. This week, the Los Angeles Animation Festival hosts the 20th anniversary screening of his feature, The Tune, yeah. and he says he'll be giving everyone in the audience a hand-drawn sketch. That is right, which is not as big a deal to, for him as that might sound, because he is also apparently the only animator ever to hand-draw every frame of a full-length feature film. Really? Yeah. He's got like a perma-squint from <laughs> focusing on those little frames? Yes, they're very tiny. Wow. All right, coming up, songwriting genius Stephen Merritt explains his attraction to love. Love is great because there are several common words that rhyme with it, and it's only one syllable long. Poetic. Yeah. That and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson tells us why we should care about space. Mm. And in just a few minutes, McSweeney's author S.H. Carlyle tells his girlfriend why she should care about dinner parties. Take yourself back two weeks to Justin and Miranda's potluck. Do you remember that? Do you remember how it feels to absolutely crush every other couple in the room? A man after our own heart. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week, it's singer and songwriter Stephen Merritt. He is the force behind the pop band The Magnetic Fields. Their album 69 Love Songs is often called one of the best albums since 1999 when it came out. He's composed movie soundtracks, stage musicals, operas. The new Magnetic Fields album, which is called Love at the Bottom of the Sea, comes out Tuesday... This week I spoke to him about it. And Stephen, welcome. Hello. Thanks for joining us. So 12-some years ago, you released 69 Love Songs, which is, for those who haven't heard it, exactly what it sounds like. 69 Love Songs of basically every possible stripe. This new album is really similar musically, and it's also all love songs. Well, I disagree with everything that anyone ever says. Um, but I, I start with that this album sounds like 69 Love Songs. Much of the instrumentation that we're using on this album didn't exist when we did 69 Love Songs. Like synthesizers and stuff. Um, yeah, we have a, a lot of things that are only charitably called synthesizers. For example, the crackle box, mm. where you complete the electrical contacts on the front of the box, and it emits a harsh shrieking sound. 
<laughs> this was not available to you 12 years ago? It was not. It sounds like something that should have been available since, you know, the 1950s. It does. Well, I think it was recently invented as a musical instrument, whereas before then it would have been maybe a battery tester. <laughs> exactly. Or, a, you know, siren of some kind. Yes. An annoyance machine. What attracted you to it? Well, when I heard it for the first time, I was shopping around for instruments to use in my musicalization of the silent movie 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yes. And it sounded like a, a great, easy way of producing inexplicable ghost noises. What, what, which song does this appear on, by the way, in the uh, new album? I believe it's on Infatuation with Your Gyration. But again, this is a kind of mordantly funny song about obsessive love. It is the kind of thing that you would find on 69 Love Songs. Should we think of this as a sequel to that album? For me, the whole joke of 69 Love Songs is that almost all of my songs and almost all of everyone else's songs as well are already love songs. (laughs) So making a certain number of them into a publicity stunt is just a sort of cynical ploy. And you suckered us all. Yes. Well done. Thank you. Why do you think there are so many love songs in the pop world? Well... Love is great because there are several common words that rhyme with it, and because it's only one syllable long. All right, well, this actually brings up, I was going to save this till later, but the album ends with a song called... All She Cares About Is Mariachi. All She Cares About Is Mariachi, which I have a feeling for you, this song really was mainly about figuring out how many words you could rhyme with mariachi. You get hibachi in there. Oh, yes. Uh, Liberace. Seeing how many words that aren't in a rhyming dictionary will rhyme with something that is only barely in a rhyming dictionary is the sort of hobby that I take to, like a duck to, um, like a dead duck to formaldehyde. Well, regarding this particular bottle of formaldehyde, do you remember how you decided on mariachi as the word of the day? It is, it's an unusual one to go with. I don't. I often don't remember. Um, in fact, with the single for this album, Andrew and Drag, I don't remember writing it at all. I woke up one morning and my car wasn't in my driveway and I deduced that I must have been off at the bar <laughs> till late at night writing a song. And I opened up the notebook and there was a song. So it was kind of a lucid dream process in that respect. Yes, or a lucid blackout process, yes. Maybe one too many drinks at the bar that night. Um, apparently not. Apparently exactly the right amount. Although there is no <laughs> final chorus in Andrew and Drag. And that may be because I just didn't write down the letter C or because I chose not to have it there, but I honored my decision not to put it in. It is kind of amazing that that song just kind of came out of nowhere because it is, I think of all of the songs on this album, it's among the most perfectly realized. It's kind of a little short story. There's a little twist at the end and a little O. Henry twist. Well, I don't know how hard I worked on it. I guess I must have worked pretty hard on it. You've said that you wrote 69 Love Songs as a way to amass enough songs that you could actually start a, a Stephen Sondheim-style musical review of your tunes. Since then, you've actually done a lot of musical theater. 
What was the appeal to you of theater, and is it what you imagined it would be? Uh, theater is the most exciting conceivable activity. So combining that with songwriting, which is really kind of the most boring conceivable activity, almost gets the pulse going. Why do you think theater is the most exciting conceivable activity? Uh, because everything could go horribly wrong at any moment. The chandelier could kill half the audience. <laughs> the helicopter could uh, go off of its rails and decapitate the actors. Uh, and in fact, uh, when I was in Los Angeles doing the Peach Blossom fan... Right, your opera. One of the actors was nearly impaled by an 18-foot glass, metal, <coughs> and neon dragonfly during the final rehearsal. And it sounds like that would be your dream come true. Well, it's that sort of thing that makes theater so exciting. <laughs> That's true. All right, we got two questions we ask every guest of honor, and the first one is, uh, if we were to meet you at a dinner party... What question should we not ask you? Oh, you're a musician. What kind of music do you do? Because <laughs> it's actually pretty hard for you. You have, you know, at least one album that hits probably 50 different genres over the course of it. It was pretty easy last year when I was able to say, well, I just did a folk album. Yeah, right. It's enough to make you not want to be eclectic anymore. Yes. All right. Uh, here's a second question, and it's more of a request. Tell us something we don't know, either about yourself or it can be about the world at large. Well... I got interested recently in something called the Pondicherry Interpretation, a physics theory that essentially throws out most of physics since 1930 with the observation that once things get under a certain scale, they get unpredictable and it just doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> now, this could be considered either a complete cop-out or an anti-scientific nut-job idea, uh, or it could be considered as philosophically interesting. I think probably all of the above. But you're saying that so once things get down like to a small kind of electron level or even subparticle level or something, they just become irrelevant to anything? Exactly. <laughs> what about that appeals to you? Um, I just like the idea that it sort of lops off all of uh, existence at a, at a particular scale. You know, can I ask, there was a, apparently an interview done some time ago with the musician Bob Mould. Somebody called him the most depressed man in rock, and he said, apparently you've never met Stephen Merritt. <laughs> Do you think there's anything to that? Um, not anymore. I have a chihuahua now. Stephen Merritt of the band Magnetic Fields, you should catch them on tour. They sound amazing in concert. And you will get Stephen at his most dour because he told me he, quote, loathes touring. Nice. You know? So it'll be like picking an apple when it's most ripe. Right. And in this case, that means it's sour. That's how he is meant to be enjoyed. Uh, and people, check out our blog. We have a couple of uh, 60s bubblegum pop songs that Stephen loves. You can hear them at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. Here at the show, we recently came upon a short satirical piece in the online journal McSweeney's Internet Tendency, and it takes our show's motto, Win Your Dinner Party, to a new extreme. This week, we overhear the author reading it. Hi, my name is S.H. Carlisle. This is a piece I wrote for McSweeney's Internet Tendency. It's called Dinner Party Timeout. Sweetheart, I'm trying to help you out there. I really am. I'm setting you up all over the place. Our first date, that thing with the painters that time, our how we met story. If you can't nail our how we met story, then we're beyond hope. I know other couples who don't even tell their own how we met stories anymore and just tell ours instead. But to hear you tell it just now made me want to blind myself. 
You're just lucky I dumped lighter fluid from the fondue on Hillary and pulled you out of there as the flame spread. Can you please tell me where your head is? Because I know it's not here. I know it's not this lighthearted dinner party for your cousin's birthday. You're missing cues everywhere. I finished every single one of my own sentences for last hour. Do you even see what's happening? We're getting killed. I appreciate the effort you're putting in, but you need to pull yourself together and be a little bit more delightful out there. As a couple, we usually define excellence. That's our game. That's the way we play. We don't do background. We're a sure thing. When people invite us to their vegetarian chili cook-offs, they know they're getting adorable. They know they're getting what they're not and what they know they should be. They know they hate us, but they hate themselves even more for not being us. Take yourself back two weeks to Justin and Miranda's potluck. Do you remember that? Do you remember how it feels to absolutely crush every other couple in the room? We were untouchable. After you told the Mexico story, Brian and Christine went home and broke up. Straight up ended it. They figured they would never get to our level of anecdotal cuteness and that they might as well give up. Brian moved out. Christine kept the dog. All because we made them look like speed dating accountants. Like at Eric's birthday, when Nicole started in on some bull about her and Tim's last trip to her uncle's kale farm, you smacked her down by telling everyone about the time we made spiced kale chips and my mouth got all itchy and that's how we found out I was allergic to kale but only cooked kale because I had a bite of your salad the next day and I was fine. And it wasn't the spices, we just know, because those are the ones we use for our famous Chilean popcorn. Nicole just shriveled into her seat and started drinking really fast. Tim told me she threw up in the car on the way home. You used to be merciless. Remember when Todd proposed to Tina at Randall's New Year's party? You just looked at me and said, gently but audibly, that I ask you to get married every day and that you'll say yes when I finally stop asking. That doesn't even make sense. But everyone loved it. They melted. No one even cared when Tina said no or that Todd left and used the ring to pay for a hooker. You need to breathe, focus, and make this happen for us. I know we broke up three months ago, but not telling anyone and continuing to go these things is the right thing to do. The feeling of victory is addictive. And when you go back to our apartment tonight and I go back to Matt's guest room slash home office, that feeling will still be there and you'll know you're a winner. So stop crying and let's get back out there. Writer S.H. Carlyle reading Dinner Party Time Out, a satirical soliloquy he wrote for the literary website McSweeney's Internet Tendency. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. Break! And now it's time for Chattering Class, the part of the show where we talk to someone who knows something that we don't. So if the topic comes up in conversation... We can hold our own, and never has our intro been more appropriate than with today's guest, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He is an astrophysicist and director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History. Welcome. Well, there's no shortage of cosmic phenomenon to bring to bear on any conversation that could possibly happen over a dinner party. <laughs> See, this is why we invited you. Uh, also, you have a new book out called Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier. And I have to admit, when I think about space, my mind immediately turns to the problems we have here on Earth, you know, poverty, crumbling infrastructure, um, Chris Brown 
singing a duet with Rihanna. I mean, there's big problems here. <laughs> Dogs cavorting with cats. <laughs> what is? Why, why do we need to go to space? So, well, I can unpack that in several ways, but let me start with the biggest item in the box. The United States spends 50 times more money on social programs and education than it does on NASA. So to hold NASA as some source, some pot of money that you want to reach into and stoke up our efforts in social programs is, an, is a misdirected thought. So another concern is, well, we're putting all these smart people on space issues and not on social issues. When the citizens of a nation see that that nation is embarking on this epic adventure and they're sending one of our own on that frontier, by the way, we've been doing this since the first folks who left the cave. These are brave souls who to go down the valley over the hill. Some of them don't come back. So, so there are always these risks. But somehow we've known that these risks, risks have been there, and it's never stopped us. Mm. And, and that maybe that's a unique feature of what it is to be human. I, I like exploiting that which distinguishes us from other animals in the animal kingdom. Me too. I use it to my advantage all the time. Yeah. Otherwise, like, what are we doing? You know, just go back to the trees, you know? Well, that's something you discuss a lot in this book. You know, without a frontier, then what are we doing here as humans? You know, once, besides just eating and, and procreation and, and staying warm, there has to be something more. Yeah, we can reduce ourselves to being in search of food, sex, and shelter, yeah. right? Which are fundamental to survival, of course. And they're fun. And they're fun. Pimp my crib or whatever the <laughs> TV show is. You know. Just cribs and pimping my ride, I think. <laughs> so, sure, no one will deny the, the fun and value of improving those. But only when you know that those are available to you is your brain and whole biophysiology freed up to then think about going beyond the horizon that nature handed you. See, I used to call this dilemma the food, shelter, now what dilemma, where, you know, you finally get a job, <laughs> your life's finally together. Most people have answered that what with kids, and I think that takes over their frontier. Right. It's interesting that, this is another aside, this is a dinner party after all. <laughs> uh, free association is all what it's about. How I, how I proceed through the world. If you look at some of the greatest work done by the greatest scientists of all time, so you look at Isaac Newton and Charles Darwin and Albert Einstein. All three of them, their greatest works, greatest, their greatest single contributions were finished before they turned 26. That is so depressing. Isaac Newton by then had discovered the laws of, of gravity and the laws of motion. And just because he needed some extra math to solve a problem that had never been solved before, he invented calculus. <laughs> Of course. Yeah, we all do that when we have a problem. So at, by the, at that age, how complex is your life? You know, do you have a zillion kids running up and down? Are you worried about the rent? I mean, I don't know, but I'm betting that the, the freedom of not having the responsibilities of life, uh, these are the conditions that would lead to very intense thought. So to do this is at a cost to your social life. Well, you, you anticipated and answered my last question because you are an astrophysicist. You're a very smart man, and I was going to ask you, you know, what's wrong with my life? But I think you, you solved it. I'm okay, actually. Maybe I'm just still groping for genius, which is why I'm single. <laughs> there it is. That's your excuse. <laughs> um, and so, oh, well, by the way, uh, just as an aside, all evidence shows that Isaac Newton died a virgin. Really? So I don't know if there's still hope for you. At this point. <laughs> wow. You can be the 40-year-old virgin, so you got to go. 
So when you go into space in a big way and people see that innovation is advancing a frontier, everyone kind of rallies behind that because the culture shifts from one of just living through your day to one of making tomorrow come. Well, that's inspiring to hear you say that and to think about. But in our country right now, you know, many people are anti-science. People don't even use their turn signals. You know, people these days just don't seem very smart. Do you have any hope that we as a people can, you know, rally behind science and, and turn things around? No. <laughs> <laughs> So, Rico, I hope it's clear that Neil was kidding. It, yes. As his book makes obvious, he is very optimistic about our future. I'm sure. Also, fun fact, he was once voted People Magazine's sexiest astrophysicist alive. <laughs> wow. And I bet that's a very competitive category. It's very stiff competition. It's like being the coolest public radio employee. Uh, folks, coming up, the band Dr. Dog shares their dinner party soundtrack. Actress Amy Brenneman judges your etiquette questions, and Brendan meets writer Joel Stein to eat lunch with a mission. This is vengeance eating for you today. Is that what we're doing? Many sea urchins were harmed in the making of that story. It's all in a minute when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear an ultra-mellow dinner party soundtrack from the laid-back rock band Dr. Dog. It's a lot of laid-backness. But first, it is time for some etiquette. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here this week to answer them is actress Amy Brenneman. She was Emmy-nominated for her work on the groundbreaking TV drama NYPD Blue. She currently co-stars on Private Practice, the hit spinoff of the series Grey's Anatomy. But she's especially qualified to tell folks how to behave, because though she is not a judge, she did play one on TV. She created and starred in Judging Amy, which ran for six seasons on CBS. And that show was based on the experiences of your mom, correct, who was a judge. She still is a judge. Still is a judge. She's probably judging me right now. Oh, my. <laughs> we should have her in. You can yes, do it together. And that's right. What court does she sit on? She does uh, delinquency and neglect. So she does what she calls kitty court. Mm-hmm. She really likes neglect. She, she's amazing, actually, in terms of sort of drilling down on why these uh, parents are treating their children so poorly. Wow. You, you understand how that would be awkward for people to hear, you know, my mom's really good at neglect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's maybe an ill-suited choice of words. Well, my therapist will be on next week, and she will also be weighing in on that subject. <laughs> and and you, too, are an engaged citizen. Next week, you are hosting a fundraiser. Can you explain a yes. little bit about? Myself, Benjamin Bratt, Tay Diggs, Laura Sanjacomo, and many others are part Man. of this thing called Chimapalooza. It's which true. Is, they all hang out together out here in L.A. We do. <laughs> it's a fundraiser for something called the Chime Institute, which is all about sort of radical inclusion of classrooms. So within any classroom, you're going to have... Typical gifted disability, and it is a little bit of a miracle. And to clarify, the idea is that it includes, as you were saying, gifted children and special needs children all in one classroom. And the communication between these kids that have grown up together is breathtaking. Well, you you clearly have the moral caliber to pass judgment on (laughs) the behavior of our listeners. Let's ask you some of these questions. This is from Sarah in Abu Dhabi. Mm. She writes, how do I politely reject unsolicited parenting advice, almost always given by people without children? I say thank you for sharing and move away. Do you have children? I do. Has this happened to you? Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I had uh, my girl who's now 10 going on 11, who I hope won't listen. I'm going to tell some tales out of school. I mean, she was a tantrumer. Mm. So the 
awkward thing about somebody in my position. I literally had her, like, I was carrying her like a football, <laughs> having removed her for the umpteenth time from a restaurant, and she was, like, freaking out. She was, like, a year and a half, two years old. Oh, and somebody recognized me from Judging Amy, and she said, I love your show. And over the din of my daughter, I said, do you like my kid? <laughs> <laughs> Please take her. <laughs> I have found happily that people are usually really sympathetic. I mean, people without children, yeah, you just... Once you have kids, you don't hang out with people without kids as much. Hey, but here um, you are. There we, yeah, I'm yeah. groovy. I'm yeah. down. So yeah, I'm kids. an old lady. We hang out with breeders. <laughs> it's okay. It's cool. Uh, I would just say thank you for sharing. I would not engage, honestly. Yeah. Like, the All more right. you engage, the worse it's going to go. So just move away. Thanks a lot. Move away. All right, let's move on to Gary. He's from Miami Beach. The question is, what is the proper etiquette when you run into a celebrity that you worship on the street. Wow. I always figured the odds are bad that it can go right. Either they won't like you or you won't like them or the two of you will find each other repulsive. The fourth choice, Gary's thought a lot about this, is that you both hit it off. So that would make it a one in four chance that it will go well. Yeah, there's also wow. a fifth choice, which is that the celebrity might offer you her child, her screaming, tantruming yes, right. child, That's true. as we've just learned. That's true. Uh, you know, it's a tough one because I think worship is such an awesome word. I have yeah. met a lot of famous people and what I've realized is uh, I can meet a lot of people and notice them, but they haven't necessarily touched my soul. When I meet somebody that has touched my soul, I am a stuttering 13-year-old <laughs> zitty high school boy. Like, I can't <laughs> deal. Is... I just can't deal. And I'm like, I'm famous. I'm, you know what? I was at a party. Like, I had every right to be at this party. And Diane Keaton was there. And all oh, wow. night long, I was like, go over to her. Tell her what you, and, and I couldn't. You didn't feel like you were on an equal No, footing? and I could, like, Robert De Niro was like, I don't care. It's Robert De Niro, you know? But, like, I think, it, I mean, no, I love Robert De Niro. But I think that <laughs> it's the idea that, that she, on some cellular level, yeah. on some almost preverbal level, means a lot to me. And I think you don't even know until you're, like, you know, it's like, oh, there's yeah. J-Lo. Awesome. She's great. She hasn't sort of gotten in there into my DNA the mm. way other people have. She will. She will. <laughs> she will after that dress. I know. After, this, after the Academy Award performance. Sure. If her uh, Taylor has anything to do with it, she'll be in your DNA. I think, I think, honestly, the best thing to do, well, it also depends where it is. Because mm, if the person, right. if the celebrity's being bombarded, I would just sort of not do anything. And karmically, just say, thanks for being you. You know, yeah. If, yeah. if it is sort of a place where there's an opening and they're comfortable. I would just say, you know, your work has meant so much. Thank you so much. Do you, yeah. By the way, what does he mean by hit it off? Like dating Well, I know that's what I mean. So I think, <laughs> I don't again, know what that fourth thing is. Again, <laughs> so Gary's thought a lot about this. So I'm thinking you should just yeah. stay away, Gary, because yeah. What are your expectations, Gary? I think you really he need to Robert look at that. Robert eating hot dogs at 2 in the morning. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes, be careful, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Gary has some unmet needs he may need to look at. It's true. You might get a security guard in the face. <laughs> Uh, let's move on to Susan in Seattle. She writes, is it okay to knit or crochet during a church service? I think so. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Why not? Really? Well, I'm going to talk about auditory processing right now. Oh, I know right. it's going to like be really boring for hey, a minute. It's the radio. Okay, but what? I'm going to tell you something. Right. Like back in the day, back in the bad old days, like when I was in seventh grade, and the mm -hmm. te math teacher would say, like, don't chew gum. If you chew gum or bang your pencil, you can't be you know, hearing what I'm saying. Well, for certain brains, that is actually not correct. Mm -hmm. That if they can occupy 
this little reptilian part of their brain with some sort of motor thing, their frontal mm-hmm. lobe actually opens a little bit more. Mm. So I would say that if somebody really is compelled to knit, if they don't knit, they're just going to be like stressing. Their brain is going to freeze up. How is a minister supposed to distinguish between someone who's just goofing off and making, right. you know? Well, if they're really tied into the Holy Spirit, they will know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> and with that, Amy Brenneman, thanks for telling our listeners and preachers how to behave. Thank you. Uh, you can catch Amy on Private Practice Thursdays at 10, and LA listeners, she will be performing Saturday, March 10th on Cal State Northridge's campus to benefit the school called the Chime Institute. You've got the details at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. So, Rico, I've noticed that uni, that's Japanese for sea urchin, right. has been creeping up on all sorts of restaurant menus lately. Well, I mean, creeping is what <laughs> sea urchins do, right? They're just spiny balls with no fins <laughs> or legs. That's a good point. That's, but but look, however they're getting around, it, they're everywhere. Yes. <laughs> and I'm not the only one who's noticed. Joel Stein, he writes about food and culture for Time Magazine and other outlets. Of course. Uh, he recently wrote a piece where he said he's basically sick of uni. So I called him up and asked him to join me for one last uni meal and to talk about his popularity. I would like the sea urchin cream omrice. And I'll take the uh, sea urchin on spaghetti. Well, so thanks for agreeing to uh, put your fork in the uni trim with me. I know this probably pains you uh, because you recently said you were over it. Yeah, I'm done with uni. Sick of it. If you want to be an intolerable foodie, you have to acknowledge trends and immediately dismiss them. So as soon as I found out that uni has been everywhere, it's been slathered on bread, it's been put in all my pasta, it's been, you know, turned into sauces, it's it dropped on top of burgers, I'm sick of it. And what was the final uh, uni straw? You know, I was at this restaurant, Red Medicine, and they asked me if I wanted it added on for another $2 to my dish. Like a topping, like like jalapenos or something? Y- yeah, more like when they ask you if you want chicken with your salad. And I, w- I was like, wow, uni's become the chicken on Caesar salad. It's over. So uni, for people who don't know, is sea urchin. Yeah, it's um, disgusting. It really is. It's the thing you've been at a sushi place, and you've seen some guy with some really cool, shiny-looking yellow thing, and you're like, oh, what's that? And he'll say, it's uni, which is the, uh, the gonad of the sea urchin, literally, the gonad. Like, they'll try and tell you it's eggs. It's not. It's the gonad. And they're slimy. They have the worst texture of any food. They're horrifying. And they're a little too sweet for a meat uh, or a piece of seafood. And they're very oceany. So they're pretty intense. They're like pink, chunky toothpaste almost. Yeah, I told uh, my wife's dad what I was doing, and he said that they reminded him of tooth decay. Of actual decay, not even, not using toothpaste. So it's interesting because uni, these are sea urchins that live on the floor. They have all those spikes. They're really mean looking. So they can't technically jump the shark. They, they physically can't move. That's a good point. So do you remember when you first encountered it? Everyone first encounters uni the same way. They are on an expense account. They spend a lot of money at a sushi restaurant. And the sushi chef takes a liking to them and offers them this thing from a jewel box that's super expensive. And then you have to eat it and pretend you liked it. But the, the first time I had it outside of a Japanese restaurant, was in New York at this tapas place. And what they would do is they would take bread and put some mustard on it and then treat the uni like a, a topping and spread it on top of the bread. And it was delicious. Because once you take it out of its texture by putting it on bread or in a sauce, its intensity kind of gets spread out on the bread or the pasta, it's actually a lot better. Because it's so bland that it can kind of dilute the fecund nature of the uni. 
So, so that was your first encounter, and then it just started popping up all over? Yeah, and then Scott Conant made some kind of seafood dish with uni in the sauce, and it was unbelievable. It was delicious. And then I started seeing it in like all my pasta, on top of like rice dishes. It, it just appeared in too many places. Scott Conant, for people who don't know. Is He's the Scarpetta guy, the Italian chef. He has a Scarpetta about seven blocks from wherever you live. So sea urchins live on the ocean floor. They're mean-looking. They're like these spiky Death Stars. I, I've actually been injured by urchins. You've been hurt by. I've been. I've stepped on uni, and I've had them shoot their. What do they shoot? They they shoot these little daggers into your foot. I mean, they have these giant gonads. So who knows what they're shooting at you? I hadn't thought of that. But here's here's the thing. Sea urchins are mean, so I'm not worried about them becoming too popular. If if they're because if they're overfished, that could be a good thing. This is vengeance eating for you today. Is that what we're doing? I think so. I think we're going to seek vengeance for my poor 12-year-old foot. Have you ever vengeance ate before? No. Is this a new trend? Vengeance eating. Yeah, I'm behind that. We're totally onto something. Okay, our food has arrived. What the heck is that? Our waitress seems very nice. But this. This is... This is I don't want to eat this. <laughs> it looks... I'll, I'll eat it. You can take it. This, this looks like an ice cream omelet. Well, there's a lot of things going on. Like this... It's like an amalgam of cultures. There's weird button mushrooms, a ton of this sauce, which I assume is where the uni is. I think some rice, some eggs. Uni is usually delivered with eggs or with pasta, right? Much and like th that's the kind of Mediterranean version. Because it's like with truffles, right? You want to put them on something like a risotto or a pasta, something very simple so you really taste them because they're so rich. Yeah. And then here, this would make sense, bread or rice or pasta. So, that's, so, that's, so you have the egg, I, I have the pasta, and let's give it a try. Well, to be honest, it tastes like mayonnaise <laughs> to me. But I don't think, I think there's just not a lot of uni in this, but... Uni's so powerful, you wouldn't think you need much of it. Okay, a little oceany, not much, a little oceany sweetness. So this uni that it turns out we're having is pretty mild, but like this is something that is, should, it seems like it should be special. Like uni should be an occasional treat. And now it's like showing up everywhere as, as like a topping. It just seems like you're, we're mistreating something. I agree, and it's, um, in these two dishes, a little watered down. Maybe you should just have it on sushi. Maybe that's where it belongs. But also, maybe you treat it more like foie gras. Ooh, see, I like the foie gras comparison because although it's sad that geese are injured while making foie gras, uh, since sea urchins are mean, it would be okay if they are harmed while making uni. Well, I think you can just expand their gonads by force-feeding them like they're geese. So, Brendan, I really like the idea of eating things that have harmed you. Yeah, I think it's going to be a new trend. Yeah, it makes me want to be attacked by a, a bowl of mac and cheese. <laughs> All right. That's right. Just give me a reason, bowl. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but the problem is you realize that the vengeance eating means that you would have to start eating cupcakes because you've made clear many times that they're, you, they upset you. See, no, they're part of my vengeance diet, so uh, uh, oh. I'm on a dessert fast in protest of them. <laughs> vengeance is complicated. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've gotten some judicious etiquette tips. We've tested the waters of a food trend. Dangerous waters. That's right. Now Spiny. all that's left for a sublime dinner party is the music. Toby Lehman sings and plays bass for the revered rock band Dr. Dog, one of our faves. They just released an album called Be the Void and are on tour now. But Toby took a break to share some favorite tunes. Hi, I'm Toby. I'm in Dr. Dog. There's a, here's a bunch of songs I would play if... Uh... I was having a dinner party, people coming over, which I actually do have. Kind of fun. Dinner parties, good time. Uh, let's see. 
first track I'm really into right now is a song called by the Melodians called Rivers of Babylon. It's a song that was recorded by uh, Leslie Kong in the um, early 70s, I guess. By the rivers of Babylon, where he sat down. It's on the Heart of They Come soundtrack, beautiful song. It uh, seems like it's about getting out of some sort of captivity or something like that, and uh, it's, it's religious, it's a religious song, but it's just a beautiful, beautiful number. And it's, the, uh, the harmonies are just incredible, and then they have, um, they finally let the singer off the chain, and he, he really belts it out, it's beautiful. Another track I've been listening to a lot lately is uh, Gypsy. I think it's called The Gypsy. It's, uh, it's on New Morning. It's a the Dylan album. I went to see the gypsy Staying in a big hotel He smiled when he saw me coming And he said, well, well, well I know all Dylan stuff pretty well, but every couple of years there'll just be one album where it's, I can't not listen to it. And it's, Blood on the tracks for right before this one for so long I could not not listen to that. How are you? He said to me. I said it back to him. The Gypsy is uh, it's a great song. It's just quintessential Dylan. Like you're hearing what he's saying, you're like I could do that, but you couldn't. You just couldn't do that. His delivery is so perfect, and the band just has this tight little groove going, and and he's uh, he's like you know he's so I like the phrasing is just perfect. Uh, if the party's grooving, I would put on the meters, uh, the meters, meters, the first meters record. And uh, anybody who's familiar with the meters knows pretty much what they're about. They're about one thing, and it's this mean groove. And that band is just so on fire all the time, but so reserved. It's like your flexion in the mirror or something. It's so cool. And then, you know, and they hit, they'll get, they'll get to the chorus of like, and it's just like the nicest, tightest sound, anything off that record. Think about the track. If I was just gonna put a track of ours on right now, I would probably pick "Big Girl." Would probably be the song I'd listen to. I was originally sort of thinking when I was writing it that I just wanted it to sound like a like a loaded air, like velvet song. It's just cool feel and. It's probably the longest song we have on record, too. It just sounded good, and we were like, all right, well, we should probably fade it out after like three and a half minutes. But, you know, I like listening to this, and so maybe other people would, could stand another minute and a half. So. She's a big girl now, and she can be I do appreciate you all coming to my dinner party. I know it was short, but uh, it was good times. I can't wait to do it again with you guys.
A dinner party soundtrack from Dr. Dog's Toby Lehman. They're on tour now in support of their latest album, Be the Void. And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Next week, Mad Men's John Hamm joins us. Another Mad Men, Jackson Musker, is assistant producer of the dinner party. Put down that cigarette. Thanks to Bill Lance, Peter Clowney, Craig Curtis, Judy McAlpin, and all of our friends at Marketplace. And podcasters, you can subscribe to us online, dinnerpartydownload.org. Bon appétit. Bye.